This morning's scripture reading is from the book of 1 John, chapter 2. And you can find this on page 877 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in the chair pockets or at the end of your aisle. Again, 1 John, chapter 2. And we will be reading verses 1 to 14. However, our focus for this morning will be on verses 1 and 2 and 12 to 14. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light, and hates his brother, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes." I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word. So we are reading through the longest of the Apostle John's letters to various churches. And one of the curious aspects of John's writing, as we covered last week, is his unique flow of thought. Uh, The flow of his letter is a lot like life. People tend to, we tend to, uh, sometimes even unknowingly, grow and learn in circles. Same mistakes, right? Uh, Same hard falls, but the same God who patiently points us to His Son and to His truth, which helps us. Until one day we actually realize our lives have grown to be a little bit more like Jesus. A little less struggle maybe with an idol, something we put as number one in our life. Even overcoming an addiction, an attitude, or a character flaw. Hence, representing this series visually with a telephone cord. It's the best I could think of here. Uh, Going in circles, just as John repeats the same themes in this book, going in circles, but progressing. Progressing. 
And we are able to progress, if you will, to the next ring, to the next circle, because we have such a wise God. When we run to Him, we encounter Him, He grows us through a combination of assurance and comfort when needed, and examination and challenge when that is needed. He sometimes humbles us, bringing us low to take a a sober look at the quality or even existence of our faith, but He lifts us up, assuring us and comforting us in our secure status in His family through our trust in Jesus. And in such a way, we're actually going to rotate Sundays as John rotates these highs and these lows. And thankfully today, on Mother's Day, you get the warm blanket of assurance and comfort. And specifically, assurance and comfort for the fight that is life. We're going to focus this morning on John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and also verses 12 through 14. And those Bible nerds paying attention this morning, where are you, Bible? Come on, it's okay if you raise your hand. It's good to be a Bible nerd. It's okay. There's no, that's actually disappointing where you have a long way to go. Wow. Nobody, nobody loves the Bible. Okay. Um, you just don't want to say you're a nerd. How about Bible savants? Raise your hand. Bible savants? Okay. There you go. Yeah. Those of you paying attention might, you know, might cry foul. Hey, you know, it's not fair. We can't just skip over the stuff in the middle when you preach. That is correct. We will, we will cover verses 3 through 11 next Sunday. Plus, though, the, the Apostle John himself, it is he who links these two sections together, verses 1 and 2, and verses 12 through 14. Look at that with me closely. Verse 1, look how he begins. My little children, I am writing these things so that you might not sin. And again in verse 12, he starts this little section. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Hopefully, you see the connection there. John gets very personal to assure those who have authentic fellowship and who no doubt owe their hearing and their growing in the gospel to John. Little children. He calls them little children. Tenderly, verse 1 and verse 12. And the assurance this morning is this, in a nutshell. God gives us everything we need to win the good fight. He gives us everything we need to win the good fight. On the brink of his own death, another apostle, the apostle Paul, looks back on his own life as a fight. And every great fighter steps into the ring with a strategy, often gets knocked down, and possesses the ability to get back up again. And John assures us and comforts us accordingly, just like that. So first, what we see here in 1 John 2, God gives us his word to fight against sin. Look again here in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so you might not sin. It would be easy to overlook this little comment and just move on. Get into the rest of chapter 2. 
But we would miss a huge statement that John is making here. This word, this letter, this word like all of God's word, helps us fight against sin. He's saying everything that comes after this and everything before, I've written to you to help you in your battle against sin. Just like all of God's word. Sin is rebellion against the person and the ways of God, our Creator. It is the big no in our hearts that says, I want my way, my choice, my life, and our everyday decisions and dispositions bear that out as we live. When you trust Jesus, when you trust your life to Jesus, you are given God, the Holy Spirit, to live inside you. And so sin, doing sin, is no longer inevitable. You don't have to sin. And God gives us His Word to fight off temptation. The temptation to say no to God. The temptation to say yes to me. Right? And just as this little part of this little teeny verse is so easy to overlook, there are a couple ways we overlook. There are a couple ways to make use of God's Word in our fight against sin that we quickly overlook. And I want to share those this morning. Number one, first of all, He gives you the Old Testament to dust off. You have this Word to fight against sin, and pretty much the largest chunk of this Word is the Old Testament. Now I should say here, we should nourish and feed ourselves with the Bible every day. And you can look online to make a reading plan on our website under recommended resources. You can make a reading plan. And we've got great little simple, easy to follow, same structure every day Bible studies you can go through as well. But this should include the Old Testament. Look, look at with me a couple scriptures in the New Testament that talk about how we can use the Old Testament to help us fight against sin and fight in this life. First, Romans 15.4. The Apostle Paul says this, For whatever was written in former days, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so first of all, through reading the Old Testament, we get hope. Now keep a mental bookmark there. Here's the other main passage that talks about how we can use the Old Testament. This is um, from 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13. Now these things took place in the Old Testament as examples for us that we might not desire evil as the people in the Old Testament did. Do not be idolaters. In other words, put something else as number one in your life besides God. As some of them were, as it is written, these people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, they would worship God, they would enjoy fellowship, then they would get up and live a completely different life serving their idol. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them, as an example, but they're written down for our instruction, this side of Jesus, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with that temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's a lot there, but let me just give you a quick summary. That's all I have time for now. From the Old Testament, we get a variety of examples of temptation and idolatry that we can both relate to and warn us. So we get these variety of examples of temptation and idolatry. We get divine justice that should be ours, and we get a way of escape from it all through Jesus Christ. He is our way of escape. In fact, knowing that Jesus has freed us from the past penalties of sin and absorbed the justice of the Father Himself, we can lean into this life-giving sufferer even as we suffer in life. This is why Jesus Christ calls Himself a gate or the door. He is the portal out of worldly temptation. He is the portal to escape from idolatry. Star Trek coming out soon. I thought I'd use portal. How about that? You like that? Good times. And from the Old Testament, we're also reminded of hope fulfilled. As we saw in Romans 15. People who in the midst of affliction looked forward to a time when a rescuer would come. And this side of the cross, you and I have seen that hope fulfilled. Jesus did come. And that gives us courage to hope for a time when the rescuer will return again and right all the wrong in this world. We have the privilege and the benefit of seeing the rescuer come. So that should encourage us to hope for a time when he will return again. We can derive hope from descriptions of Jesus returning in places like 1 Thessalonians 4. Hope in the future glory being achieved in us far outweighing the suffering we're going through. Romans 8. The description of a world totally ruled by Jesus in Revelation 21 and 22. This hope to look forward to. Just as people in the Old Testament look forward to the hope of the rescuer first coming. Does that make sense? This is those in the Old Testament derived hope in the coming of an unusual rescuer from heaven. We have the hope of him coming again. God gives us the Old Testament to dust off. He also gives us his word to memorize. I heard the great uh, Dallas Willard, great author, scholar, teacher, who actually passed away this last week. Um, first he quoted Joshua 1.8 which says, do not let this book of the law, God's word, depart from your mouth. And he went on to say, that's where you need it. How does it get in your mouth though? Memorization. He said, there's no other way. Memorization. God's word in our hearts, in our minds, kills deception, first of all. This is why it's so important to memorize God's Word. Have it in our minds. It kills deception that comes our way during the day when you don't have a Bible in front of you. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, verses 3-5, through Though we walk in the flesh, every day we live life with bodies. <laughs> That's pretty easy to understand, right? We're not waging war like people in the flesh would. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, 
You may have heard these verses before, but you may not have noticed a couple things. You may not have thought about the arguments and lofty opinions, which are rarely blunt and rarely obvious. Arguments against Jesus, against God, against the Christian worldview, are of the sort that whisper at a crucial moment, don't be so legalistic. When fought with temptation, when fought with deception, don't be so legalistic. Or, and nothing is bad in moderation. Or, you know, I've been pretty good for God lately. I've been going to church, I've been pretty good. And then, dot, 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 give in to a decision in life. Similarly, opinions are effective, not because they're so obvious, but because as people who seem normal and sane share them, you know, over time, they have a cumulative effect of moving us closer to the center and away from total allegiance to Jesus Christ. They just have that sort of erosion effect. They move us more and more to the center, away from total allegiance to Jesus. It's important to have God's Word to fight that. And Paul says, here's the second thing, that they fight to fight them with weapons, he says. If you read Ephesians 6, about the armor that's to protect the Christian in the spiritual warfare. There's only one real weapon. There's only one offensive weapon. The rest is just armor. That weapon is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. How are you going to fight off these eroding and subtle opinions and these arguments into our minds? Memorizing God's Word. There's there's no shortcut, friends, to that. So the Word kills deception. It also fights off temptation. Psalm 119. The psalmist says, I have stored your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Don't you love that? I love that verse. It's like you're keeping reserves. You're, You're hoarding up God's Word. It's like you've got extras in the in the cabinet. Right in the pantry to bring out at any time. My brother-in-law is a crew chief for NASCAR, racing cars um, in the southern United States, which has its old load of jokes there, but I'm not going to go there. Um, but my brother-in-law is a, actually a crew chief for NASCAR. Um, it's kind of, kind of a big deal, and uh, specifically for Jeff Burton, number 31 car. Holla! All right. Well, anyway, I see him every summer, if not other times, and uh, we, I get to hear some really entertaining stories in the world of NASCAR. Uh, and I remember one time he just casually, briefly referred to what was an incomplete story that happened years ago, but it intrigued me enough that I looked it up. There are lots of rules in NASCAR as to what you can add to one's car, what you can adjust on the car, what you can have, what you can't have. It's, it's just a lot of rules. You know, you can't have, like, turbo jet fuel, for instance. You know, that'd be unfair and kill a person. Uh, but there are other little rules as well. This particular season, there was a small adjustment that could be made by crew chiefs that was against NASCAR rules. But almost everybody else was doing it. So crew chief Tim Shutt crawled under the number 20 car of Mike McLaughlin. And he says this, that uh, team owner Joe Gibbs is adamant that we don't cheat. Joe Gibbs is a Christian. Uh, Tim Shutt was talking about this. Tim was a relatively new believer who encountered Christ at a NASCAR-sponsored 
Christian retreat. Trusted his life to Christ. He goes on to say, most teams figure that as long as you get away with it, it's not cheating. So I said to Mike, the driver that morning in practice, hey man, if we're no good in practice, I'm just going to put this piece, the illegal piece, on the car. You know, probably 30 other teams are doing it. I was justifying it in my mind, he said. So during the race, we were not doing well. (laughs) I got up under the car, and I got halfway through putting it on, and he says, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He said, came flashing in red in front of me. Just, just flashing around, and I was like, whoa, that was it. I said, man, I'm leaving this up to you, God. By the way, he didn't have like a divine intervention where he never read or memorized this before, where like this verse just suddenly came to mind. He memorized it. And he didn't put the peace on the car. McLaughlin won that race at Talladega, which is one of the biggest races of the year. And Tim goes on to say, when we won, the first thing that came to mind was that verse. It was clear. God wanted to show Himself to me. Friends, this story doesn't happen if Tim, in coming to know Jesus, doesn't memorize Matthew 6.33. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You you do the hard work of memorizing His Word. He brings it to mind on the right occasions. God gives us his word for the fight. Secondly, big secondly here, God gives us his son for victory when we do go down for the count. When we get knocked down, he gives us his son for victory anyway. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. But if anyone does sin, they do fall down, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins we're going to learn a word this morning. Get ready. All right. Is uh, the propitiation for sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the gift that keeps on going and keeps on giving. And I want to show you four layers of that gift through a story. Through a story. Uh, Dr. Samuel Weinstein is chief of uh, pediatric cardiothoracic surgery for the Children's Hospital at uh, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. In May of 2006, he traveled to El Salvador with uh, Heart Care International in order to provide a life-saving operations for less fortunate children. A very cool thing. I, he, however, it would take more than his expertise and, and, and advanced equipment to save the life of one child he performed surgery on, an eight-year-old Francisco Calderon, Anthony Fernandez. Dr. Weinstein and his team began operating on Francisco's heart shortly before noon and 12 hours into the surgery. The procedure took a deadly turn. He said the surgery had been going well, everything was working great, but he was bleeding a lot and they didn't have at the hospital there a lot of medicines that we could use to stop the bleeding. After a while, they said they couldn't give him any more blood because they were running out, and Francisco had a rare blood type. 
In fact, Francisco's blood type was B negative, which according to the Red Cross is present in about 2% of the world's population. As it was, the only other person in the room with the blood type of B negative was Dr. Weinstein himself. Knowing what he had to do, the doctor stepped away from the table, stepped down from the operating table. As his colleagues continued their precision work, Dr. Weinstein set aside his scalpel, took off his gloves, began washing his hands and his forearm. Then in the corner of an unfamiliar operating room, this prestigious doctor from one of the most advanced hospitals in the world sat down to give away his own blood. When he gave a pint, Dr. Weinstein drank some water, ate a Pop-Tart. Good to know they had those in El Salvador, in case you're ever visiting. And then, 20 minutes after stepping away from the table, he rejoined his colleagues after watching his own blood begin to circulate in the boy's small veins. He completed the operation, saving Francisco's heart and his life. It's a cool story, right? Sacrificial, inspirational, heroic. Even still, the gift that Jesus gives in himself blows this out of the water. It's comparable what blows us out of the water. Now, in the story I shared, the doctor gives his blood that will be replenished, that will come back to him. But you can't get blood back if you give it all. Jesus stepped away from the operating table and gave all of his blood. He gave it all, never to get it back so that all of his righteousness could be transferred to those who trust in him. Through our veins, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Transferred to us. So we might get right before the Father on the day of judgment. So his sacrifice is a total transfer, giving all of himself to us on that operating table. This is what theologians call substitutionary atonement we got some more fancy words coming up here for you because Jesus' gift goes deeper. Imagine for a moment that it's no longer a sweet, underprivileged eight-year-old boy who has no other recourse, but there on the operating table lay the man with whom his wife cheated on him. Or a co-worker, maybe a fellow doctor who lied, manipulated, stabbed him in the back, so it cost him everything. And the job he had before. That's far closer to Jesus. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says this, starting in verse 7, that very rarely will someone die, sacrifice himself for a righteous man. Maybe for a good man someone might die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Meaning, while we were still enemies, still rebelling, against the God who created us and all of His ways, giving of ourselves to other things. The Bible even pictures this as prostituting ourselves. And there are many verses that say that very bluntly. God in Jesus Christ dies for us, for enemies. Sacrifice for an enemy. And so taking away guilt that's called expiation. The other is called expiation. 
that the gift keeps going deeper in Jesus. I love this about Jesus. Now imagine in making this total sacrifice for an enemy, the doctor is somehow able, in a Hollywood story, prevent the patient from dying. I mean dying at all. He has some type of blood that helps this patient live forever, a former enemy. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, of His standard. And that the wages of sin, the natural check, salary you get for sin is death. Romans 6.23 Death is every person's destiny without God stepping in and changing the course of your history. God is just and He has to punish for any rebellion or else He's no longer just. So He gives the punishment of death. But because Jesus Christ, the righteous, died in our place, God puts the punishment on Jesus and is satisfied. He died in our place. The punishment of death goes on Jesus. And God is satisfied. That is called propitiation. It's the next level of Jesus' sacrifice for us. A total substitutionary sacrifice that removes sin and absorbs the just punishment of it. So it removes sin, but in doing so, God also, in saving us, He also absorbs the just punishment for sin that the Father, a just Father, hands down. Propitiation. And that's why we hear the greatest, deepest aspect of Jesus' sacrifice here in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. You see, the rabbit hole keeps going deeper when it comes to Jesus' gift, His sacrifice for us. The riches of Jesus' sacrifice given to former enemies, they're endless. And they keep on giving too. Jesus keeps on giving too. Now imagine this dead doctor. He just keeps going. Imagine a deeper scenario, a more far-fetched scenario, because this is what Jesus has done for us. It's completely far-fetched. It's completely absurd that a God would do this for enemies. Imagine this dead doctor rises alive from the cold hospital floor, just kind of gets up in some type of Quentin Tarantino zombie movie, I don't know. And and, and though he has a high position of prestige, spends the rest of his days defending and fighting for little Francisco. He just spends the rest of his life with him. He becomes an advocate for his health care, his medicine, good schooling, a bright future, maybe goes to university. The doctor advocates for him. Jesus, friends, is such an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the holy, the prestigious, the majestic. Having risen from the dead into life eternal, Jesus decides to become our advocate. Hebrews 7.25 puts us this way. This is an amazing truth here. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since Jesus always lives to make intercession for those who trust in him. Think about that statement. Jesus lives, lives for this. He lives, it's like his job. Jesus is the perfect lobbyist because he has been and still is fully human having experienced every sorrow, every temptation, yet he's also fully God, so you know he's got the ear of the Trinity. You know he's got their ear. They're listening to him. A 
perfect lobbyist for us. Guys, Jesus is a better story and more effective hero than any fairy tale, any email forward that's inspirational, any CNN hero. He is a savior, not only for a time when we are down and left for dead, but for times we keep getting knocked down and lay helplessly there. And guess what? The gift of Jesus keeps on going through encouragement. Here's the last point. God gives us encouragement through his son to get up off the mat. That's what we see in verses 12 through 14. The gift keeps on on giving. Verses 12 through 14, Apostle John writes this beautiful little passage. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Um, two questions immediately come to mind, or should immediately come to mind when we read this. Um, you can tell in this passage it has some symmetry and some connections. So, so what is this exactly, this little passage? And secondly, because it seems kind of masculine, who is it for? First of all, what is this? It's not a hymn or a poem, poem per se, nor a blessing, nor a benediction, but it's sort of a poetic pronouncement of truth. It's this poetic version of what we might call uh, speaking truth over someone and into someone's life. It's powerful, and I'm probably going to fly to the blogosphere later to talk more about this, but for now, that's good to know. Who is it for? Kind of wondering here on Mother's Day today, uh, you know, what shows up here in the Bible, but words to fathers, children, and young men, right? Which is like, oh, that didn't really connect. (laughs) Sorry, moms. Uh, But, but, every mother's dream I know this, is for there to be a strong, godly man in her child's life. There's a pretty decent chance that some of you men today recognize that part of your Mother's Day gift was attending church with a mom. So glad to have you with us. Um, And John does appeal here to men such as you. But I think the best explanation, kind of a dual meaning, is that he is using the appeal and relevance of a relationship with God in various stages of a man's life, which can also be applied and should be applied to believers everywhere and at every stage in life, no matter their gender. He just happened to be using the stages of a man's life. But it can apply to all of us. So, these, friends, are the kinds of promises meant to be claimed and can be claimed by anyone who trusts Jesus Christ. And my hope is that you can claim at least one of these and pass along one this week to a fellow family member here in the church. First of all, let's look at these here. and see which one sticks out to you. Verse 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. We've talked about already what Jesus' sacrifice does for us. What I love about being around a kid, being around a child, is when a child is forgiven and truly senses it, it's far less about what that does for them or how it makes them feel. 
It's all about Jesus for them. Have you noticed if you have kids, you have nieces, you have nephews, you've seen this. It's about how good he is. He becomes this object of excitement, of adoration, of joy. So that the act of forgiveness truly becomes more for his name's sake and not for the child himself or herself. It's him. It's about him. It's about him. A friend told me a story about an atheist neighbor whose four-year-old daughter grew up in a household that didn't talk about God at all. So while talking with with, uh, my friend, this neighbor comes over and he's talking and then his daughter comes over into the yard and asks her father, where does the world come from? Where does the world come from? And true to his worldview, he lost into a discourse, materialistic in nature, and evolution, these sorts of things. However, he said, there are those who believe that all of this comes from a very powerful and loving being, and they call him God. At this point, the girl, she just was filled with joy, started to jump, to, to dance, to twirl around the yard, exclaiming with joy, I knew what you told me wasn't true. It's him. It is him. It is him. And he didn't know what to do. That's the sheer self-forgetfulness of a child in the discovery of Jesus, of him. It's not about me, what you can do for me. It's him. It's him for his name's sake. That's what God wants to grow us to and that we have in Jesus. Verse 13, we move on here. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. What an encouragement. You know him who is from the beginning. We see this also in verse 14 as well. Of all these truths, none was so encouraging to me this past week as this one. I was just feeling lonely. Um, Not necessarily for any particular service. Just feeling lonely on Sunday and Monday this last week. and Especially lonely when it comes to just church leadership. Uh, we had one elder who needed to step down last fall, and now we have Pastor Richard is leaving. And sometimes I just have some down days with that, to be honest with you guys. And um, I had a few trusted and well-meaning folks I met with during the week try to encourage me, uh, and did in many ways. But it was reading this simple truth that is mine through Christ that did it for me. That lifted me up, and encouraged me, that spurred me on. As a father and church leader who feels responsibility, just to remember there's a father and a leader who has provided for his people and fulfilled every promise since the beginning of time. To you fathers, you've known the one who's from the beginning. He has a track record that predates the keeping of track records. What an encouragement to me. And maybe to you. Here's another one, verse 13 as well. I'm writing to you young men. Because you have overcome the evil one. We see this at the end of verse 14 as well. You've overcome the evil one, young men. John wrote a final book. That final book was the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. In chapter 12, verse 11, he says this, And those who have trusted in Jesus have conquered Satan, the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Having already talked about the blood of the Lamb, there's something about a young man And the trials and temptations a young man faces to need to hold on to Jesus and stay on that path by sharing his testimony, 
by holding on to his testimony and sharing it. Uh, we added an 11th member to our Sunrise Missions team in Honduras. It was a young man named Austin. Austin, uh, coming from the United States, joined us on this trip and um, just kind of a, almost a spare part came along. We didn't know him beforehand. During the trip, we heard Austin refer, I heard Austin refer, not in detail and not boastfully, but just how God rescued him from similar trials and addictions that those we were ministering to were going through. Three or four times, I just overheard Austin share. Once was directly to me. And I think I only heard once in detail because whether he knew it or not, he needed to remind himself of his testimony more than others needed to hear it. That needs to happen. To overcome the evil one as a young person. Just sharing your testimony. Not even in detail all the time. We almost need to hear it more than others do. Okay, last one here. Going down to verse 14. I wrote to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Young man's strength comes from God's word abiding in them. They are less shaken, less moved, because God's word fills them up, gives them a weightiness. When you eat it, you just get fat with God's word. (laughs) It's awesome. You can't move. Friends, I just memorized God's word. I got nothing, no shortcut here. Uh, When I was going to this pastor's conference, I picked up this uh, Navigator's Topical Memory System. I'll have this in the back if you want to look at it. Take it. Uh, topical memory system. I had these uh, fighter verses that Katie actually picked up last week at a children's ministry conference. We've been conferencing a lot here. Called Fighter Verses. You can also get these as a $3 app on your iPhone. Fighter Verses. Awesome stuff. Quizzes. Got everything. Finally, Seeds Family Worship. Uh, it's great to learn memory verses by song, even if they're kids' songs. I have probably learned like 20 verses of Scripture just through singing these darn things in the car, all right? Uh, and studies show how the brain absorbs things better in patterns. And that's what music does. It gives you patterns to memorize. So these will be in the back. Let me say one last thing. It's tempting to assume, friends, other Christians you are count- encountering are walking around secure. They're walking around encouragement. They seem so content and secure. Most times people are not. Someone, someone here needs to hear you speak to them the security of one of these encouraging truths this week. So whether you put it directly word for word or you say, you know what, I'm just glad that our Father takes care of the sparrows in our own backyards. So He takes care of us. Maybe you say something like that. I'm just grateful God has been a Father for thousands of years now. Maybe that's the way you put the encouragement. Or, you know, man, isn't it amazing how God saved us? How he did it? So wise. So incredible. Maybe you're having lunch. You could say, man, you and I get to keep having this meal through eternity. With Jesus. And finally, I don't have to pay for it. You know, you can joke with someone. (laughs) Or finally, one way to put one of these verses here is, you know what? I know you're being tempted, but you can overcome. Satan can go to hell. Hey, in fact, he can stay there. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you give us assurance and comfort for the fight of life. This fight is hard. This life is hard, Lord.
Thank You so much for giving us Your Word to fight. Thank You, Jesus, that when we fall down, Your sacrifice is sufficient. The fact that You took our place on the table, Lord, stepped down from Your prestige and Your majesty, took our place, and not only paid for our sins and substituted Yourself there, but You took and absorbed the justice of God. Amazing to help us get back up again. And finally, Lord, to keep on fighting, you give us encouragement. You give us these promises, these truths that are true of us because for us who trusted in Jesus. Father, help us this week, not only to be encouraged by these truths, but take a moment to encourage someone else. Don't let us be deceived to think, man, they don't need to hear this. They're fine. They're okay. That is not from the Lord. Help us Follow that prompting from your spirit to encourage someone with the truth of God. That's us all in Jesus' name. Amen.